You're listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Affairs at Stanford University. We bring expertise on international affairs from Stanford's campus straight to you. I'm Michael McFall, your host and director of FSI. This week, I'm thrilled to have as our guest, Ambassador Wendy Sherman, who is here on campus today giving many talks. Thank you for doing that, Ambassador, and many events, uh, including tonight the S.T. Lee Annual Lecture on International Diplomacy. Uh, She'll be talking about her new book, Not for the Faint of Heart, Lessons in Courage, Power, and Persistence. Ambassador Sherman served as Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs during the Obama administration and was the lead negotiator on the Iran deal. She also served as counselor of the Department of State under Secretary Madeleine Albright and special advisor to to President Clinton, during which she also negotiated with the North Koreans. I think you're the only person who's actually negotiated with North Koreans and Iranians. Is that true? Uh, That's probably true. There are some folks on the team who certainly hand in both. Okay, that's good to know. Uh, We'll talk about that in a minute. But in her new book, she discusses in detail the Iran negotiations, but also tackles much broader issues about diplomacy, power, including what it's like to be the only woman in the room sometimes during difficult negotiations. Ambassador Sherman, thanks for joining World Class. Terrific to be with you, Mike. Um, You yourself are world class. And so it's (laughs) always a pleasure. And thank you for your service to our country and for your continued forthrightness about what's important in the world. Well, thanks for saying that. Um, And thanks for coming to Stanford. It's it's a long ways away. Uh, We are thrilled to have you here. Let's start with the Iran deal, right? Uh, you're going to tell us exactly what it is and what it isn't and the, and the, the right name to, to describe it. You know, I was in the government for five years, and one of my takeaways when I give lectures about what it's like to be an academic going into the government is it's really hard to do anything. Uh, <laughs> to do, it's easy to be. It's hard to do. It's first hard to negotiate something within the government to mm-hmm. do something, Uh, And then in diplomacy, you have to add a country. But in your case, you added one of the most difficult countries in the world to negotiate with, the Iranians. And then you did it in a multilateral context. And the goal of that negotiation was to convince the Iranians to give up their pursuit of nuclear weapons. That sounds like almost an impossible task. I do think it's probably, if not the signature achievement of the Obama administration, it's it's got to be in the top of the list. So I just I think our listeners just want to know how did you get it done? Help us just define it briefly what the it is, so that everybody's kind of level set with that, and then explain what you think were the conditions for success. Uh, so uh, the Iran deal is uh, literally known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. And it, JCPOA. How, JCPOA. How does that roll off your tongue? Right, doesn't yes. <laughs> it? Always these names do. Uh, and it was intended and does ensure that Iran doesn't obtain a nuclear weapon. And President Obama laid out for those of us who were negotiating, including, of course, Secretary John Kerry, Secretary Ernie Moniz, our energy secretary, uh, a core team that worked with me of about 15 folks from different parts of our government, and then hundreds, literally hundreds of people in our government government. uh, who worked on this. The president was very clear that we were to stop uh, the production of all fissile material, uh, enriched uranium, highly enriched uranium, weapons-grade plutonium, and any covert supply chain to ensure that Iran wouldn't get a nuclear weapon. The Europeans had started to negotiate such a deal in the early 2000s. Uh, We picked it up in seriousness in uh, 2011. The first two years almost uh, were under then Iranian President Ahmadinejad. 
And quite frankly, although we traipsed around the world and the president even began a very quiet secret channel, we pretty much didn't get anywhere. Right. Uh, when President Rouhani came in as president of Iran and President Obama uh, in his inaugural said that we would reach out our hand if Iran would unclench their fist, uh, we began to get some traction. But it took us nearly two years uh, to really negotiate uh, this deal. It's 110 pages long, highly technical, complex. And as you point out, to do these things, you negotiate inside your own government. You negotiate with all of your partner governments that are at the right. negotiating table. In this case, right. Right. It's called the P5, P5 plus permanent, one. Yes. Permanent members of the Security Council, UK, France, United States, Russia, China, plus Germany, coordinated by the European Union. So they were also there. They were also there. there. Right. Yes. right. You, you negotiate with the U.S. Congress, which has an interest, with Israel, with our Gulf partners, with other countries around the world. And yeah, of course with Iran. <laughs> From time to time. Well, let's let's dig into a few of those for a moment. First, let's start with the Iranians, of course. You just said something very interesting, I think, which is one of the triggers, and, and you're going to tell us maybe there are more, uh, was the election of President Rouhani. Is it fair to say that if he had not been elected, that it would have not happened or it would have been more difficult? And talk about, you know, he is oftentimes referred to as a moderate in their system, suggesting that there are factions. I've heard you say there he's a hardliner and then there's hard hardliners. So right. those are better labels. But it sounds like there must have been some domestic politics, some bureaucratic politics within the Iranian government. How did that manifest itself while you were negotiating with them? Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, the interesting part is that the secret channel that President Obama authorized began when Ahmadinejad was president much to President Rouhani's surprise when right. he became president. I think a lot of Americans right, were surprised a lot of Americans that surprised. when we heard about it, yes. It didn't get really very far. But uh -huh. the very fact that even Ahmadinejad, a really hard, hard liner, uh -huh. was open to this meant that the sanctions that both the United States and our partners around the world had imposed was having an impact, not to stop Iran's ambitions. They constantly increased the number of centrifuges they had spinning. But it did focus their minds to think maybe they ought to come to the negotiating table right. and see if they couldn't get some relief. What Rouhani understood was that uh, for him to be a successful president, for Iran to move forward economically, he needed to remove some of those sanctions, even though at every turn Iran said they could live with the sanctions and right. that the negotiation wasn't about lifting the sanctions, right. when, of course, at some measure it was. Uh -huh. What about on our side? Did we have any hard hardliners in the Obama administration, or was there more or less agreement about what you were trying to do? I think there was a lot of coherence and a lot of agreement. Uh, but uh, as I talk about in the book, I think it's critical to have a skeptic on every team. Uh -huh. So we certainly had some skeptics uh, in uh, the administration who really pushed to make sure that the negotiating strategy we were laying out and the parameters were tough enough uh, that we wouldn't uh, sort of agree to something that wouldn't reach the president's objectives that wouldn't increase right. U.S. national security. And you were clear about the president's objectives. Very, right? very clear, yeah. which is critical. And the president yeah. understood all of the details yes. of this negotiation. He's an also, amazing that way, isn't it? He's yes. quite amazing. And it's critical because when the leader understands the details, which these days may not be so much the case. That's uh, very diplomatically stated, it, it's Ambassador. It's hard. It's hard. <laughs> very hard uh, to get to the resolution that you need to get to. Right. What about the other players? Were there uh, in the P5 plus one? Um, 
were there, you know, the, I, I remember, and you write about it, the French from time to time seemed like they wanted to be the hardliner role. Was there ever a moment when there was too much disagreement about it within the P5 plus one or was it oh, more posturing? Well, I think some of it was quite real. Some okay. of it was posturing. Uh, Gaelic independence does manifest itself uh, <laughs> constantly. Uh-huh. Uh, and, um, you know, I think the French were trying to both make sure they stood in good stead with Saudi Arabia and in good stead right. with Israel. Why is that? Exist- uh, well, uh, the uh, French like to sell their Rafael fighter jets right. to uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, oil is important uh, to the world's economy. Uh, and uh, where Israel is concerned, uh, France wanted to make sure they had a strong relationship uh, given history and uh, given, of course, the strategic importance of Israel as the only democracy in the Middle East, right. something of great importance to us as well. And how did they take, you You write about it in the book, I think you were the, the, uh, the diplomat that had to deliver this message, that in fact, we had this other channel, this bilateral channel for a while, and now we were going to move it into the P5 plus one. Tell us a little bit about how that went. Well, the P5 plus one had been meeting all of this time that the secret bilateral channel was going on. And in October, before a meeting of ministers that was to take place in Geneva a couple of weeks later, I was going to Brussels for a coordination meeting uh, led by the European Union, High Representative Kathy Ashton. And the president had finally agreed that I should tell my colleagues, what had been going on, because we had a draft that we wanted to present in Geneva of an interim agreement uh, that would stop uh, and even roll back parts of Iran's program in return for a very slight uh, bit of sanctions relief. Uh, There were still brackets that had to be Uh agreed to, but nonetheless, so I um, wasn't very much looking forward to this meeting. Mm -hmm. Kathy Ashton uh, took it with a plum. She's a professional. Uh And quite frankly, I think Many of my colleagues suspected something was going on. Um, But what made it the most difficult is it really was a statement about U.S. power. And I represented that power, that although the other members of the P5 plus one could stop an agreement, certainly could bring expertise and good ideas to an agreement, no agreement could happen without the United States of America. And so it was uh, not the most digestible lunch I've ever had. (laughs) Well, it all worked out in the long run, for sure. Uh, on page 57, you have this phrase, sometimes compartmentalizing is key. Explain what that means for the nuclear deal and what have sub- subsequent critics have said, well, you left this out, you left that out. Explain what that means. Well, I meant compartmentalization in two ways, uh, one which you'll be very familiar with. Uh, that is that while we were negotiating, uh, working with our colleagues, Uh, Russia decided to invade Ukraine uh, to illegally attempt to annex Crimea and to set up a front in eastern Ukraine in the Donbass. And you confronted our mutual friend, Deputy Foreign Minister Ribkov. Go ahead. I I, I was was reading that passage. Yeah, Deputy Secretary uh, Sergei Ribkov is a superb diplomat. Yes, I agree. Uh, One of the most serious professionals uh, in in Russia's uh, diplomatic corps. And Sergey and I had gotten to know each other because we'd worked on the Syria chemical weapons course, deal yes, together. Of course, yes. Uh, but this this morning when we were all gathering for a coordination meeting among the P5 plus one, I was furious. Yeah. I couldn't imagine why they had done this. Right. I, I could, but it was so outrageous. Right. And I went over to see Sergey. Sometimes you can have a very private conversation in a crowded room. And I said, Sergey, what are you doing? And he looked at me, realized what I was talking about, and said, Nothing is amiss and walked away. 
He never walked away from me. But he walked away because he understood that if he stayed there, we were going to really argue and we were going to get off point. We were in that room to deal with the Iran nuclear agreement. And Ukraine would have to be dealt with in another channel. And it was. And we sanctioned Russia uh, tremendously. You had to live that experience. And um, but it it taught me a lesson about how important it is to stay focused in the room if you want to get something done and how you have to walk and chew gum at the same time. Sanction Russia at the same time you might be working with them on something else. I think um, there are many other ways in diplomacy when you have to take things as they come. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the deal, the president had decided that what we needed to do most was to ensure Iran not get a nuclear weapon, because if they had one, they would be able to deter, to deter us and our allies and partners in mm-hmm. everything else we might try to accomplish. And so the malign behavior in the region, the state sponsorship of terrorism, their abysmal human rights efforts, all of these things we wanted to deal with. We kept sanctions on all of them, but we thought we would be placed in a better position to deal with them if we took nuclear weapons off the table. And keep that in one channel. Yes. Uh, by the way, lots of your critics that were on the Republican side forget that that was a kind of crucial way that many people, Republicans negotiated during the Cold War, including Ronald Reagan, by the Good way. Point. Um, Good point. Uh, you can't put it all together, but you have to engage in these separate places. But people forget these things. Uh, I was just talking to George Schultz about it just last hmm. week, in fact. But let's get to your critics. Uh, Trump pulled out of the deal. He said it was the most horrible deal ever made. Tell us how I mean, I obviously I know that you think that's a mistake. I do, too. How big a mistake is it? What are the consequences of pulling out? I think it's a terribly big mistake. Right now, the deal is holding together because the Europeans are working hard to try to do that. The Iranians understand the consequences if they now pull out. That said, we're at a really difficult point. Uh, We've really sort of thrown the Europeans into the arms of Russia and China, which seems a little absurd to me. Uh, It doesn't appear that there is a strategy for dealing with the malign behavior in the Middle East, which we must do. Mm -hmm. So I don't quite get what that is. If the administration is hoping that maximum pressure on sanctions will bring about regime change. Which they kind of hint at. Sort of kind of hint at. Yes. uh, Even though they say they're not about regime change. We've never done that very well. The consequences of that is usually does not turn out very well. Uh, so it's a huge bet, a huge bet. All the while, Iran uh, strengthens its position with others around the world. Right. <laughs> that sounds super tragic. So let's pull, let's pull back. <laughs> let's pull up 30,000 feet for a minute and talk about diplomacy more generally. Mm-hmm. We don't have a major in diplomacy here at Stanford. I don't think we teach it very well. Maybe they do in other places, and you could tell us about that. But if if you were if if you were, let's just let's just talk about a course, not an entire mm-hmm. major. If you were outlining a course, what would be the kind of weekly subjects? I thought about maybe they're the chapters of your book. <laughs> what what are the elements that you need to learn that you need to know to be an effective diplomat? Well, I think it is some of the lessons in the book around courage and team building, finding common ground, understanding the nature of power. Understand when you have to let go, when things yes. just aren't going to work. The time is not ripe. Right. Uh, understanding um, uh, failure, of course, uh, how you get to success and how history, as you know well, uh, never ends. Mm-hmm. And diplomacy rarely has a finale. Yes. Uh, I think that's a 
poorly understood point by right. a lot of people, right? Uh, and even, quite frankly, military action. World War I was supposed to be the war that ended all wars. And then 20 years later, which is just a blip in history, yes. we had World War II. We've now had over 70 years of peace. And I'd like that to continue uh, for a very long time. Um, but I do think we are putting that at risk in a number of ways. So I think that all of those lessons need to be taught in terms of diplomacy. There are some skills about how you act as a diplomat. It's not about cocktail parties. Mm -hmm. uh, diplomacy, when done right, is smart and tough. Uh, in all due respect to Joe Nye uh, coining the term soft power, there's really nothing soft about diplomacy. That's a great point. Uh, and um, I think there's a lot to be learned uh, from people who are practitioners of mm -hmm. diplomacy. And there are some fantastic uh, diplomats uh, who are career foreign service officers mm -hmm. who certainly taught me a great deal about how to do this right. But your path to this is rather unusual, kind of interesting, different than your average undersecretary for political affairs. In fact, you're the, the if I'm not mistaken, you're the first and only woman who's ever had that job. Yes. I didn't know that till I, I saw your book today or uh, when you were talking earlier today, uh -huh. that really jumped out at me. How can that be? But you also were involved in politics. You were involved in domestic issues. How, do you think there's something in that kind of intellectual capital that uh, human capital, as, as economists would call it, that was useful in terms of what, what you did as a diplomat later? Or uh, they just completely different? No, I don't think they're completely different. I mean, Part of the point of the book is that we are, are most powerful when we are, are our authentic selves, Yes. Uh, when we bring all that we are to the table. And we're all different. Some people like to be in front of the curtain. Other people like to be behind the curtain. Right. So be who you really are and understand where your strengths come from. Uh, my training is as a social worker, as a community yeah. organizer and a clinician. And uh, you've already heard me joke that my clinical skills are very helpful with dictators and members of Congress. Uh, so I brought all of that first to child welfare, then to politics and campaigns, and then through just a serendipitous set of events, uh, ended up being Assistant Secretary of Legislative Affairs for Bill Clinton in his first term, then Counselor for Madeleine Albright, uh, built an international uh, business consulting business. Uh, with Madeleine Albright uh, and others, and uh, then went back into government to be the undersecretary. I've lived an unexpected and very privileged life. Amazing career. And we're going to end on that in a minute. I want to ask two more questions, one more question about diplomacy, and then two questions about women in power. Um, do you think there's different negotiating styles between Iranians, North Koreans, Chinese, Russians? Uh, you talk about in your book a narrative re of resistance that the Iranians have. I mean, I, I'm asking a giant question, but but is there such a thing? And and should these are should these be things that we study as a future diplomats? Yes, I do think there are different negotiating styles. Uh -huh. I think that the uh, Kim uh, Jong Il, the father of Kim Jong Un, whom I did meet with uh, with Secretary Albright, is very was very transactional. He wanted to make a deal. He was quite clear he wanted to make a deal. He did know the details of the missile deal we were trying to do. Um, but he was very transactional. Uh -huh. um, the Iranians, uh, not so much. Uh, they are very good negotiators. They're very tough. They are a culture of resistance. They're incredibly knowledgeable. Uh, there's always one more thing they want. Uh, it is rarely over quickly. Uh, <laughs> it is one has to be very tough 
And um, there were many times during the negotiations where we said uh, this was, you know, to the president, we don't think this is going to happen. Uh, you have to be ready to get up walk and walk away. out of the room. And that's true with the North Koreans as well. But yes, I do think people have, and countries partly out of their own culture and their own history, have different negotiating styles. So studying culture and history are good things to prepare critical, for future critical, diplomats. Critical. All right, let's shift gears just uh, finally. A, a couple of things, very striking things in your book about women in power. On page 73, you write, women, it must be said, have a strange relationship with power. <laughs> Explain what you meant by that. Well, I think a lot of us are brought up to believe that power is icky. Mm-hmm. It's a bad thing when, in fact, power is in and of itself not bad. It's actually pretty nice mm-hmm. if it's used for good purposes and good ends. Uh, I think that um, we often are comfortable in using power in relationship to other people and in support of an objective, not being the front person, not being the leader. Uh, I think that's quite, in many ways, visceral. Uh, and uh, we have to learn to be comfortable with the good side of power and how to use it and own it. Well, you talk about owning your power. and In your book, you taught uh, Secretary Albright. What a a fantastic mentor to have, by the (laughs) way. Um, She explained to you, you you talk about it one day, where she said you have to own your power. Help us understand what that phrase means. Yeah, what she was uh, talking about in that instance is that um, she said when she was, this came to her when she was ambassador to the UN, and she sat behind a sign that said the United States of America. Right. And so she had said to me, you know, Wendy, when you're on the other side of a negotiating table, you're less Wendy Sherman, a woman, in my case, an American Jew. You're the United States of America. America. And that is darn powerful. And so if you own that role, as well as bringing all your own personal power to the table, that's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. One more story I want to talk about in the book. In your interviews with Secretary Clinton and her chief of staff, they it's kind of an extraordinary story. Um, they 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 said you're too pushy. You were too <laughs> aggressive. What, uh, what, uh, what was that about? That surprises me, especially <laughs> coming from those two women who I would have thought would have celebrated that. Well, you know, they themselves have been called too assertive, too yes. strong, too pushy, too tough. Uh, Not a team player. That was another right. phrase it, you used. The, yeah. the main issue was, was I a team player? And uh, I, I was rather shocked. Yeah. Uh, to have that conversation. Uh, they'd heard that from some people. I didn't know whether it came from the time I was the assistant secretary for legislative affairs and neither the State Department nor the Congress love you because you're the person who <laughs> right. sort of navigates the two. Um, and um, so we had pretty direct conversation about it. And I was surprised because the same things had been said of them. Yeah. And quite frankly, I did the same thing to my own mother. Uh, stereotyped her as a woman at her funeral. I was shocked to come in and see... 400 people. Uh, she had sold uh, condominiums. She had been a mentor to tons of young, younger agents uh, when she was still selling condos when she was in her 80s. Wow. Uh, and she uh, was beloved as a teacher and a mentor. And I had never seen her that way. And so I learned an important lesson. We all stereotype each other. And it's important to try to not do that and to see beyond that. And in this case, with uh, Secretary uh, Clinton and with Cheryl Mills, her chief of staff, uh, Bill Burns, a great colleague to both you yeah. and I, uh, and a senior foreign service officer had become deputy secretary of state. He and I had worked together quite a bit during the Clinton administration. Uh, and he uh, told the secretary I'd be a fabulous team player. And I think that helped a great deal. 
Well, and the evidence is pretty clear, right? <laughs> the proof is in the outcomes, not the rhetoric. I mean, I, I, honestly, I mean, the Iran nuclear deal is one of, it, as a negotiation, I think it'll be studied for decades. Uh, and I hope it has life uh, beyond the Trump administration. Um, you don't do that without being a great team player. So congratulations Because you need a big that. team to do it. Because it's a big team. And, yep. and, you know, I've been part of other negotiations. You don't get it done being on your own. Never. Um, Last question. Uh, you spoke to uh, some of our students this morning. Uh, I ran into them as they were coming out of breakfast. Um, and one of them said, I want to be her. <laughs> uh, so, you you know, uh, not having the, that other reaction, what you talked about, power really resonated. So if you're finishing your master's degree in international policy right now at Stanford or Georgetown or Harvard, you know, what are the first things that young people that want to be you? What's what's the things you would recommend for, I think you're going to say there is no path, right? I know you say that in your book, but, but like some of the thing, well, recommendations. What, well, of, what I say is, uh, first of all, be yourself. Really know yourself. Right. Make use of who you are. And that's going to be different than who I am. Right. Uh, you're also living in a different time than I am. You're going to live, live in a time of artificial intelligence and right. cyber. And I didn't grow up in that time. Um, second, I wish everybody an unexpected life. Um, I That's hope that phrase, yeah. people use the skill set they have, but be open to all kinds of opportunities because that's when the most exciting and interesting things happen. If you only set out a five-year plan, you may miss the best things along the way. And then, uh, you know, your first job after your master's degree or your first job after undergraduate, just take a job, get going. If it's the wrong thing, go on to the next thing. Failure is important. Uh, scientists understand that. They don't gain knowledge without failure. Sometimes those of us in other parts of the world uh, don't take risks because we're afraid of failure. It's a great point. It's how we learn the most. Great advice. Uh, thank you, Ambassador Sherman, for joining us today. And listeners, we've only touched the surface of Wendy's new book, Not for the Faint Heart. Order your copy right now. <laughs> uh, with one click, you can all do it. You've been listening to World Class from the Freeman Spokely Institute for International Affairs at Stanford University. If you like this episode, please review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners to find the show. And be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on what's happening in the world today.